Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 532 with my guest Matt Haig. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Pretty obvious, but I like to say it anyways. I am I'm not a therapist, uh, but I am a nut job. And uh, I'm working on getting my nut job license, which uh, is hard because if you show up to get your license, they know you're not a nut job. So there's a, there's a catch twenty two there. Um, I feel like I'm about seventy five percent over the the COVID for anybody who's interested. Um, sense of smell is about seventy five percent back, and. Um, yeah, I, I feel grateful that uh, it didn't it didn't knock me out or leave at least so far any any lasting damage. I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with Matt. Uh, this is from the Struggle on a Sentence survey filled out by Lisa P. And about her depression, she writes: uh, major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety anxiety disorder. Half of my time is spent thinking about wanting to die while the other half is worrying about everything that might kill me. Oh my God, that is so good. About her codependency. Why can't someone just love me enough to change their behavior so that I can finally relax? Oh, Lisa, those are fantastic. Thank you for that. So spot on. Holy shit. Uh, this is from the new survey that we have. Uh, we just launched it about a week ago. The uh, Ask Paul Anything survey and the, I love her name, the Hyper Vigilante uh, writes, 
Uh, Hi, Paul. You've mentioned a few times that you have a brother, but I don't think I've ever heard you speak about him. I think it would be really interesting and help us understand more about you if you could speak about him, if that is something you feel comfortable doing. Well, to some degree, I, I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. My, my brother's a private uh, person, um, and in a lot of ways, I think he and I are different. Uh, he's a lawyer, and um, he's he is... Uh, um, I would say a type A personality, uh, super responsible, um, hard worker, um, doesn't talk about his feelings a lot, uh, got a good heart. Uh, yeah, that's, and, uh, and he has validated, uh, my childhood experiences because he, a lot of the stuff he did not see, but he knows um, he knows what my mom is like, and um, it feels really good to have his support. Because I know a lot of people when they come forward with truths about abuse that they suffered, um, it can really split the family, and the siblings uh, can turn against them, and that to me is just. So shitty, so shitty, and I'm glad that that wasn't the case uh, with me. This is from, um, this is an email I get. I try to respond to every email uh, that I get, and this uh, is from Jen, who is the community manager at Pinch Me, and she writes, Helen, updating your Pinch Me profile is the key to scoring free samples. Uh and then she asks some some questions that I guess are going to uh, help me as Helen qualify for things. What stores do you shop at? Um, I shop exclusively at the 98 cent store. Um, I discovered it about 14 years ago and because um, I used to shop at the 99 cent store. And since shopping at the 98 cent store uh starting about 14 years ago i've saved over six dollars do you have a dog i do her name is gracie uh what type of breed is she she is a mutt and what is her preferred type of dog food i have never fed her i keep forgetting and uh she doesn't seem to notice do you or anyone in your household wear contact lenses that is funny that you asked that. All 12 of us wear contact lenses. But the, there's only one pair, and we share them, so we, we each get to wear them two hours a day. And I'm a little pissed because I get the night shift. Maybe it's because I'm a night owl, but I get them from 4 to 6 in the morning. And so really the only benefit of wearing them is I get to watch the sunrise before I go to bed. And, um, and then, then I, I hand them off. Do you have curly hair? Um, well, some of my hair is curly. Are there any children zero to two years old in your household? Yes, we actually have a zero-year-old, and they came to live with us about two years ago. But thank you for those questions, Helen. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Brown Blob. And about his depression, he writes, By the time I'm done cooking dinner, I'm too tired to eat it. And about his anxiety, every day life feels like waiting to jump out of an airplane. Oh, those are so good. Oh, I know that feeling. That feeling of just like a sense of doom. 
just like you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You don't know, you don't know what form the disappointment or the horror is going to come in, but your body is just telling you, oh man, it's right around the corner. Uh, we are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. If you've never tried BetterHelp, uh, that's betterhelp.com. Uh, if you've never tried it, it's it's nice. I I enjoy it. They've been a sponsor for, God, probably three years now. And uh, I have a great relationship with my therapist. And uh, love doing it from the comfort of my home. Uh, for, for those of you especially that live in the boonies that have to drive a far way to, uh, to get to therapy, I, I think it's, uh, it's a great choice. It's certainly worth checking out. Um, so if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast and then fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit, They'll match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. And they are licensed in all 50 states, and you need to be over 18. Oh, Gracie. Of course, it's silent all day until I hit record, and then I should probably close the front windows. She she is the policeman of uh, the bay window, uh, letting me know if uh, if someone is walking on the street. I love too at the end the the as the as the bark dies down that uh and finally this is a struggle on a sentence filled out by autistic ex-mormon and they uh suffer from autism uh sensory overload in a snapshot of their life all voices and sounds mixed together to create a deafening roar crashing upon my senses i can barely speak can't think, and each person at the bar is a threat to my senses and safety. And oh yeah, I'm the person at the bar for the next four hours running karaoke. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I am here with Matt Haig, who is an author, very prolific author, got a bunch of books out. Uh, the Midnight Library is, is the one that you have out right now. It's kicking ass on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. Uh, you also wrote A Boy Called Christmas, How to Stop Time. Um, the book that I really want to talk about, though, uh, is the book Reasons to Stay Alive. It's certainly in the wheelhouse of the people that listen to this podcast. And it's it's a memoir about your struggles with anxiety and depression. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a kind of memoir. I mean, when, but the problem I had writing Reasons to Stay Alive was trying to work out what kind of book I was writing because um, certainly at the time I wrote it, not many people had heard of me. And I thought, does anyone really want a, a memoir from someone who went, yes, went through an experience of um, depression, panic disorder, um, suicidal ideation, all of that stuff. But, I, you know, no one had heard of me. I, I didn't think my experience was so off the radar. It was um, going to resonate with anybody. Um, but I spoke to a friend who'd actually prompted me to write it. And she said, actually, that's the point, you know, people will relate to it because it's kind of relatable to their own experience because you're not like an A-list celebrity, because it's just something that a lot of people go through. That's an incredibly intense experience for them, but it's not a unique experience in the sense that, you know, there are millions of people who go through depression, who have suicidal thoughts, who have panic attacks, who have all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, it was part memoir. Um, in, in my country, UK, it's often in the self-help section, but I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit um, unsure about its status as a self-help book because I feel a self-help book... I feel to to be writing a self-help book, you kind of need to have all the answers or you have to be sort of standing on the mountaintop saying, you know, get right. out of bed at eight in the morning and get nine hours sleep and this, that and the other. And it's not really that. I mean, if this book is anything, it's kind of a message in a bottle through time from the me who was writing it a few years ago to the me who was sort of lit, standing on a literal cliff in Spain and, um, you know, thinking there was absolutely no way forward. So it's a kind of a, a letter from one version of me to another version of me and to anyone who, who can relate to that situation or wants to understand. Um, I mean, one thing I really wanted to do was to, to visualise this invisible thing, to sort of try and make people who haven't necessarily been through this um, have a little bit more empathy or understanding because I think it's very frustrating. Obviously it's very frustrating to be ill with something like depression, but it's also very frustrating to look after somebody um, who's not, you know, they're not in a wheelchair. They've got no visible um, mm -hmm. symptoms. They could look like a perfectly healthy young man yet their, their brain feels like it's on fire that, you know, they're in, uh, every day their life is in danger, but outwardly it, doesn't look like that and there's not always a reason so I wanted to sort of articulate as much as I could um you know what it actually feels like when you can't actually articulate it yourself and and I think you did a, a great job doing it I while I don't relate to the panic attack stuff uh for instance my uh, my buddy Stevie mm. uh went through terrible insomnia and panic attacks debilitating like emergency room panic attacks and mm. he what you described is exactly what he was describing to me. So I know uh, that must bring tremendous comfort to people out there who experience that. I can tell you as somebody who has uh, mild anxiety, but treatment resistant depression, it was so nice to hear somebody else looks at an object and wishes they were an object. I've looked at an <laughs> Ottoman before and been jealous yeah, yeah. Why yeah, can't I be an Ottoman? Totally. I mean, and and to people who haven't gone through that, it can sound quite 
self-indulgent but I can remember like being in a theatre and seeing uh, I don't know I, I'd see someone I'd see like a 90 year old person I'd see someone in a wheelchair it sounds dreadful to say these things but I, and I would literally want to swap places with anyone in that mm-hmm. room in the in the states of total um despair you, you fantasize because there's no off switch when you're re- when you're really in deep at that point um i mean there is an off switch and it's an off switch that's coming but you don't one of the symptoms of it is is you feel in that moment like you're going to stay at the very lowest point there's not going to be a fluctuation you're going to be at that very lowest point and that is a symptom that that total lack of perspective and so you 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 desperately wish for some kind of um, relief from it, like even like a, a couple of minutes of not feeling of it, like a, a timeout button or something, or to, to to literally body swap, or yeah, to become like a tree, or to become like a non sentient life form. Yes, that is definitely um, it. And I feel like you know we're talking about like you know obviously this book tackles sort of suicide head on. But suicide for me wasn't ever really like a death wish. And I don't, I doubt to how many people it is actively a death wish. It's more of a unable to cope with life. Exactly. Isn't it? It, 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 it's a how. It's a, it's a, I want to live, but how? You know, I'm, I'm how trapped I, between, I'm tra- I don't want to kill myself, but I don't want to keep doing this. It's, so it's I always to- say, I don't, you know, I woke up, I, I was not happy to wake up, didn't want to kill myself, but was not happy to be alive. And I think for, like you said, I think for a lot of us, that's the place we find ourselves in because we can know intellectually we can look at our life on paper and say, yeah. there's a lot there, you know, that yeah. I wish I could feel grateful for. And I am intellectually, but I can't feel my life. My life feels like it's on the other side of a plexiglass window and I can't touch it. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, and people often say, you know, you were very lucky um, because you were in a relationship. You had parents who were quite understanding. You had somewhere to go. And obviously that is a kind of look. And I wouldn't want to know the version that didn't have those things and that safety net. But at the time, you know, my my close partner who I had been with for five years and we were at the age of 24. So when you're in a five-year relationship at the age of 24, that's a long time. That's like a long marriage. Are you talking and, about a- Andrea? Andrea, yeah. And I was incredibly grateful for all kinds of reasons to have her. But in the moment of the worst moments of total suicidal thinking and stuff, you literally, yeah, you feel like they might as well be 10,000 miles away from you. They can be across, across the kitchen table, but it can be another planet and so in that sense you're always on your own in those moments you're always alone you can be surrounded by the most loving people who love you whatever happens unconditionally and yet still feel alone and that is the nature of um depression in its sort of more serious forms i suppose do you think that's that's why sometimes uh forms of entertainment that are dark maybe a dark documentary can be comforting uh, when we're yeah. in that place. I, I used to feel guilty for getting excited about a documentary where, you know, like I watched the documentary of Ian Curtis when I saw oh, a documentary about the guy from, from Joy Division that killed yeah. himself. I felt like it was Christmas. And then I was like, what, what is the fucking matter with you? Why are why are you yes, excited I about do. that? I do. I mean, I, 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 I've got two different um, things about this. Yes, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, because you, the last thing you want is to be surrounded by 
I don't know, um, rainbows and unicorns and, you know, happy love songs and all of that. You want like, some kind of echo. So you feel like you're vaguely connected to the planet. Like, like there's other human beings who are, you know, who can articulate dark things and experience it. One thing I was scared of, and this is probably more to do with the anxiety side than the depression side. One thing I had this sort of almost ridiculous fear of, if there was someone I'd known, uh, like a famous person who died by suicide, I was like, I was scared, say, of, I don't know, listening to Nirvana or reading Hemingway or Sylvia Plath or something. It, I was scared that I'd suddenly just be in their slipstream and it, that would just be inevitably send me over the edge because, you know, and, and it's, I know so much now about how ridiculous that, that sort of thinking is because, you know, it, when Hemingway's writing a certain book in time, he, he's not the person who the 60 whatever year old person who, who died, died um, with a gunshot, he's, he's a different person at different points in life. And we're not always, I think it's wrong to define someone who's died by suicide as that was their whole life, that it was right. just leading to that one moment. Cause very often, even hours before it wasn't leading to that one moment. And, and uh, so that, that's also why, but I think part of the problem was, um, you know, when I was, had my breakdown 20 years ago, the only famous people you really had on the sort of pop culture radar with mental illness struggles were the tragic ones, you know, your Van Goghs and your, your, your Hemingways and your Kurt Cobains and whoever it was. And so I had a narrative in my head of what mental illness was, and it was a very crude and very simple narrative that, you know, you were either well or you were ill. You were either men had mental health or you were mad. And um, that was my worldview. And, and the idea of having depression, and part of my problem was I couldn't take the diagnosis of depression. It, it depressed me. So it sent me further just, just by self-stigma. And so I... Um, I imagined that, you know, suicide was almost like going to be the inevitable sort of full stop, the inevitable period at the end of the sentence that would, um, uh, you know, be waiting for me. And I was convinced I wouldn't be alive at 25 and blah, blah, blah. And then I suppose the power that you build up against depression, even while still having depression, is the fact that you 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 rationalise to such an extent that you know depression lies about certain things so if if you were convinced you're going to die at 25 and then it's your 25th birthday that gives you a little bit your inner therapist a little bit of power of mm -hmm. rationalization and although you know it seems a bit weird as, as you say you know you can on paper feel lucky about things but don't feel it i totally relate to that but also i think there is a, there is a power in kind of rationalizing things because because depression and mental illness in general is so by its nature irrational i think but often the weapon we have against it is a kind of forced rationality which is exhausting sometimes because the feelings are so strong but if you keep on reminding yourself that those feelings you have felt so many times before and the worst outcome didn't happen yeah, life isn't all a bed of roses, but the absolute total catastrophic worldview depression sometimes gives you didn't come to pass. And that, that you're talking about before 2020. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a feeling actually, isn't it? I, I found, I don't know about you, but I found last year in particular and still ongoing, it, it felt like 
It was very strange as someone who, whose, whose mental illness led to, say, agoraphobia, led to certain OCD symptoms of sort of like hand washing and stuff. It was almost like an enforced, not, not in terms of the feeling, but in terms of the activities. It was the activities of mental illness, wasn't it? It's like I finally sort of felt like the outside world reflected my inner world. <laughs> that yes. it wasn't safe to go outside, that yeah. we should be, you know, hoarding goods because we don't know when we're going to get it again. And it just, it suddenly felt, it it felt, I, I, aside from the pain of knowing that people I love and people who I don't even know are going to be financially destitute, yeah. aside from that, I, I, I said, if I could marry the quarantine, I would marry it. <laughs> That's how good and right it felt for me, which I know is fucked up to, to say yeah. that that was the truth. Well, I, I, I relate to that. I mean, I had three years of agoraphobia, which was like, I suppose it's more extreme than a, a quarantine because even when you've shut the door behind you and you've sealed yourself in, you're still, you, you still can't escape your own head. So I suppose it's got that added element. But yeah, that, this, I, I, I've, I've often felt but when everything in the world is going relatively good and when my life's going relatively good, if my brain goes wrong in those moments, that's when I really um, struggle. I can remember we used to live in the town of York in the north of England and we had a house by the river. And there was a, it was a lovely house. Um, but the trouble was the river flooded because the water had nowhere to go because it was all developed land. So even though we were high up on the river, um, once every few years, um, even though our real estate person had said it would never happen again, the water rises and comes into the houses. And I can remember one winter the river flooded and it wiped out you know, a lot of the value of the house, wiped out the kitchen, had to replace dishwashers, everything. Um, and people were being really sympathetic and, you know, and I felt great because before that moment, um, I, I, you know, that patch where you, you, you're not totally ill, but you're not totally well. And you, 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 you feel it coming. It's just like this onset of dread and it's day by day. It seems you can't quite escape it. And it, and it, but each day is worse than the last day and that sense of decline, which I, I had. and then suddenly, I had a this real world uh, semi catastrophe happen, although no one was physically harmed, um, but it was it was very dramatic, and our house was on the news and this that and the other, and I felt, you know, I was trying not to look like it to my wife or my kids, but I felt great because I suddenly was switched into, I don't know, primeval caveman mode or whatever, but I had something external in front of me that was a real primal experience and I had to deal with it. And it, it kind of took me, you sometimes need something to just jolt you onto a different track. And I feel like often when my life is very comfortable and there's not much to worry about, um, I can fall apart. That said, when it's a real life person, like if my wife got ill or, you know, I'd spiral dreadfully. So there seems to be like, there's a perfect sweet spot where there's a, 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 a slight, and I suppose the pandemic fits into it for some people where it's catastrophic, but for a lot of us survivable and manageable. So the panic doesn't always get too out of hand uh, yet. There's something to think about and distract yourself. That's external 
horribleness rather than internal horribleness. The the other thing that I, I and I very much relate to that. I uh, moved here to Los Angeles in 1994, a week before the gigantic earthquake, and as as terrible as it was, there was a sense of community in the shared struggle in this apartment building with people who I just met. And after everybody's lives kind of got put back together and things got fixed and everybody went on their separate way, I longed for something to bring us back together, not necessarily an earthquake, but that shared struggle, uh, the, the spiritual nature of the, the malady of darkness to me has been an element that is, is, you know, in my quiver of things that I need to pull out prayer, meditation, exercise, all the stuff you talk about in, in your book. Um, do yeah. you, how are you with, you know, creating a, a, a sense of community or a support network beyond your, your wife? Um, yeah. I mean, people are massively important. Um, what's also important for me is, um, a sense of ritual or routine and a pattern. And, uh, you know, another thing lockdown has been relatively good for in terms of my mind has been, it's been very easy to set my own routine that's not disturbed. And, you know, so whether it's my morning run, do a bit of yoga here and there, you know, eating at set times, cooking more. Um, I mean, I find for instance, cooking about as therapeutic activity as almost anything on earth there's something about cooking if i'm cooking like a curry or with something with a lot of ingredients in uh, but you know i can do i don't know what it is about cooking but are um, you able to do it without a sense of hurry of i got to get through this uh it depends it depends on um it depends on the day. It depends on what I've got to do. It depends on um, working. Um, but generally speaking, I always have, I mean, I don't always have depression, but I always have low to mid-level, sometimes high-level anxiety. So I've always got this sort of speed in my brain that's going over and over. And I, I can never quite be in the moment. I can never quite. I, 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 but cooking is, is about as close as I get to being properly mindful and in the moment. One of the things that uh, I love about your book, there's many things I, I, I love about it. Uh, you, you list the things that you get more sympathy for than having depression because people can't see it. And it's the time that your leg caught on fire, the time a blackboard <laughs> fell on you, uh, you know, and this list of things that, yeah, you, you it, be normal for somebody to have empathy for you, but it, it it's such a great highlight of uh, yes. Why totally. do we not get that for this? It it, it is so true, and uh, I notice it even to this day. Even after writing that book and being quite well known for that book in in the UK, um, if I even feel like if I if I if and this is before the pandemic, but if I couldn't do an event or something because of mental illness, I would always prefer to have a physical reason. So if it was a vague physical reason I could, I could put in its place, I, I would still, even as this mental health advocate person, I'd still often use the physical because I just know that um, 
for all the talk that people have nowadays in the mental health conversation about being okay and stigma free, I still find that when you actually exhibit real life symptoms of mental illness in front of someone, or if you uh, explain your mental health issues to somebody, they won't properly understand often. They won't actually uh, really know what you're talking about. And I think one of the things is a lot, because we rightly say that everybody has mental health because we all have health. We all have physical health. Having mental health doesn't mean you have mental illness. We all have this thing called mental health. I think there's still an idea that, that we all have roughly the same experiences and some people are a bit worse at handling those experiences. And I think that's where a lot of um, stigma comes from and even self-stigma i can remember thinking oh why can't i you know especially something like agoraphobia why can't i go to the corner store without having a panic attack you know what is wrong with me and i I, i've really managed to reframe all that stuff in my head to actually realize that just as you have physical resistance training and you, you get stronger by carrying a lot of weight and it's painful and you, you, you that's how you build muscle or you know physical thing i think there's a mental kind of resistance training where um you you get stronger and better in a way at dealing with anxiety by having anxiety you know I, it's actually made me better sometimes at stressful real world situations because i've been so used to sort of talking myself down out of a panic attack at four mm-hmm. in the morning or, uh, or 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 finding a way you know i'm, I'm not a deeply uh, spiritual person and i'm certainly not a buddhist but I, I find a lot of buddhist thinking in terms of the philosophical aspects of buddhism quite um useful um about this about how you can actually um handle a problem like um an anxiety attack by trying to step out of the anxiety attack because whenever you're feeling something whether it's depression anxiety whatever it is there is always a separation however intense that feeling is there's a separation same with physical pain there's a you that is experiencing the pain so there's a a slight separation between you and the pain Uh, the pain very much can dominate and everything else but when you say something like i have depression there is an i that is experiencing the depression that's separate to it just as you can be in a hurricane that's beating you up but you are not the hurricane and i I, that for me was a very useful way of reframing it because i used to say i'm a depressive you know this that and the other which which kind of set it in stone as that is the only thing i am and there's no separation between me and my experiences whereas buddhism is very much about um your experiences being the kind of weather of your existence but there's a there's a a a a self that is separate to that and it's kind of like yourself isn't your thoughts and and that kind of separation helps me in literal practical terms like at three in the morning if i start analyzing a panic attack at three in the morning i can get to a point where i'm looking at it like a piece of you know art in a gallery and sort of walking around it and thinking oh that's interesting and this that and the other and and get interested by your, your symptoms almost like a doctor of yourself i find that um even though you'd always rather not have your symptoms right it's it's a way of uh it's a way of having some kind of distance, some protecting some 
part of you that's separate to it. But yeah, all of this stuff is very hard to explain to people. But what what I'm basically saying is I, I used to think before I had a panic attack, but I was someone who'd had a panic attack and been able to deal with it. Because I used to think a panic attack was like when you when you um, lost your keys or, or when you were late for an interview or when you'd forgotten about a meeting or this, that and the other, or, um, or you looked down and your legs were on fire. I thought that's what a panic attack was. But when I actually had a full-blown panic attack, I realized... Well, I, it was so intense, I didn't realise it was a panic attack because we say words like depression and panic attack in everyday life. And so it's very easy for people to think, I know what that experience is because I talk about it all the time. And then you have this thing, which is is as physical as it is mental because you, you, every sense is affected. Your heart is pounding, you're sweating, um, your sense of vision can become impaired. You can see sort of things on your periphery and your brain is so full of adrenaline and and, uh, you just are by the nature of a panic attack it is something beyond your control because it's actually giving you panic and when you're in that state of panic and it's actually worse for not having a real thing to be panicking about because then you get on this loop where you're just as you can be depressed about having depression when you're panicking about panic, it's in, almost impossible to hack into your brain to get out of the panic until you've literally exhausted your body. And, and that's how anxiety and depression used to be linked with me. I'd have this big, full-blown, day-long panic attack. And then I'd be so depleted, I'd be automatically in a state of depression. So they'd sort of like have this symbiotic relationship. But um, yeah, I, I feel like people do not understand that actually it's not a weakness of the person that's experiencing it. It can actually be a strengthening thing. I feel like in so many ways, and I'm not just saying this in a sentimental way, I, I feel in genuine ways, I'm actually a stronger person um, this side of the line of my breakdown and years of in and out of depression and anxiety than I was um, before. And even while I'm having the symptoms, I feel like, I'm stronger. That's not to say that I'm happier. It's not to say that I, um, I'm safer. It's just to say that I feel like when you've been through any intense experience that you've survived, um, you learn things about yourself and about it that you didn't know before. And that knowledge can actually have uses. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. And as you also mentioned in your book, it gives us <clears throat> a sense of appreciation for the moments when we're not depressed, when we're not yeah. anxious. And, you know, sometimes when I am feeling cursed by whatever maladies I'm, I'm fighting, I think, you know, if whoever created the universe had made it so that every day everybody got along and there was no drama, we wouldn't, we wouldn't feel it because it would just be like water to a fish. So in, in many exactly. ways we need the pain to feel the pleasure, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, that water to the fish thing is, is, is dead on. I mean, I, I can re remember never being grateful for anything before I was ill. I was a typical young man needed 
everything turned up to 10, you know, the most violent Tarantino movies, uh, you know, drinking loads of tequila, whatever it was. And I'd have said, I'm a happy person. I wasn't really a happy person. I was someone who was always trying to escape themselves in some form or other, whether it was alcohol, drugs, entertainment, whatever. Um, but I would have said I'm a sort of happy person and you'd have seen lots of photographs of me laughing and looking like the life of a party. But I was really running away from myself. And actually after that experience of when, you know, you hit the brick wall and then you recover or partially recover from the state of complete breakdown. Afterwards, you, you, you do get a sense of gratitude for new neutrality, for all the stuff you thought was really dull and boring before. You, that, because in the state of depression, you are desperate to be, have a normal sense of boredom or a normal sense of worry or a, or a quiet day. And so afterwards, you, you, because that experience was so intense and became such a part of you, you always remember it. And so anything that's antithetical, the antithesis of that becomes um, beautiful and wonderful and something you're grateful for. So yes, just uh, just walking um, around, not listening to any music and just sort of like, I don't know, uh, being hippy dippy and staring at a tree or the sky or whatever can, can take on this amazing sense of gratitude that you'd have never felt without it. So yes, I think I am still thin skinned and that's the nature of my anxiety. And yes, I, I you know, it is intense. There is a good side to that intensity. And um, I think intensity is a better word for me than depression and anxiety. Yes, I did definitely have those things to a clinical level, but there's an intensity that that's the flip side of that, which can make me, I don't know, sometimes have these almost miraculous feelings that are, um, I wouldn't want to, be without but I know they couldn't exist without having gone through the other stuff so it's almost like that experience of depression expanded my remit for feeling but not just bad feeling it just made me more capable of feeling all kinds of stuff including the bad stuff but not limited entirely to the bad stuff one of the things Matt and I were talking about before we started recording was uh, I, I told him one of, one of the things I love in his book is the reasons to stay alive that, that he lists. And uh, I said, could I get you to either read those from your book or just riff on some, I, I wrote a few down uh, about a half hour ago uh, in case, in case my mind blanks. Um <laughs> But does that does that sound like something you'd like to? Uh, yeah, like a shot well, at? I mean, essentially, I mean, whenever you know, I'm asked to give reasons. So, like, there's there's two two ways of doing it. There's there's the kind of list of things that you appreciate that you, you never thought you would appreciate, and that can range from everything from watching from laughing at Will Ferrell and Elf to um you know listening to the Beach Boys to running by the river to um laughing with your friends all of that good sentimental corny stuff that you thought you'd never have access to and then you do um to me the, the it, what I think is the real reason um to stay alive that's close to universal for people, so especially young people in the situation that I was in and people in midlife, 
um, is the sense that of uncertainty about the future. You, depression might tell you a story of you and how things are, but that is very often a symptom rather than a reality. And the fact is that whether we're ill or whether we're well, um, human beings are creatures of change. Like all life on earth is, we change and our brains change. And there's this uh, word, this very science, scientific word, neuroplasticity, which describes how through our experiences, brains literally change their cellular structure, you know, through reading, interacting, um, doing podcasts, listening to podcasts, through going for walks, through exercise, through life experiences, through the aging process, we actually change, you know, our brains change. We are a slightly different version of us to who we were last year, uh, but quite a considerable difference to 10 years ago. And certainly to when we were children, most of us would recognize that we're a slightly different person at different points in our life and that can be kind of scary in a, a context where you're well but when you're ill you know that is such a powerful reason to stay alive so you know the hardest version of this question I ever got was well you were quite privileged you know you had somewhere to go you had people who loved you what would you say to a person who has no one and feels like they've got nothing and no prospects and they've got nobody in their life you can't exactly say to them, I'll stay alive for other people in that context. And no, you can't in those terms, but there's another version of stay alive for other people and that's staying alive for the other versions of yourself. There's a staying alive for the other people you will become, for the other people you will meet who you haven't met yet. And I think that's a more powerful thing because we're so um, conditioned in the West, I think, to, to see uncertainty as this automatic bad force we like to be in control of everything we like to sort of know what we're doing we like to have our schedule we like to be on top of it you know but i think that's a big difference between western and eastern thinking but in the west we, we were conditioned that we we need to be in control of our lives especially i think it's a male thing like we need to sort of know what's up and what we're doing especially, especially the, as the world gets more complex and moves faster it's yeah you know, exactly. it's like all and of a sudden the pitchers scary pitch, times pitching 200 yeah. miles an hour now <laughs> it's like i don't exactly. want to get hit by and the I ball think that's the problem we feel very much um out of control and a lot of the things we worry about we're, we're literally detached from in the sense that we can't do much about so we have in the in the case of anxiety for instance we've been conditioned you know the evolutionary psychologists will tell us that we've been conditioned to feel anxiety as a survival thing because you know you'd get up out of your cave you'd see uh, i don't know footprints of a bear or a wolf pack and you'd have a decision to make you even move or you stay and fight and fend them off. Um, and, and that was a clear choice you had to make. Now, we, those fight or flight choices, um, we don't really have um, in the same way. You know, we will we'll get stressed out about um, politics or an election or... Um, we, we have the same reaction if someone unfollows us on Twitter uh, yeah, that, that exactly. we would if a wolf broke into the cave. 
exactly so you know and and we we we're overloaded i think we're overloaded because there's a very uh like brainy uh guy from oxford university called roger dunbar this social anthropologist and he came up with this thing which now has its own wikipedia page called dunbar's number and dunbar's number is basically 150 and 150 is if you go back through history, this sounds a bit of a detour, but it, it does have a point, I promise you. If you go back through history, the average size of human settlements in sort of primeval times, right through to the 18th century, across Europe um, and a- across the world, the average settlement, um, when they dug up the bones and archaeologists looked at the records, um, it was about 150 people. You, you, that was the sort of amount of people you'd have in the sort of larger communities. But be so from this, it's been deduced that 150 is about the amount of people you can cope with, knowing completely in your life. You know, from from people you really know well to people on the fringes that you just about recognise. It's about 150. Now, of course, we're in an age where we could be on Instagram or Twitter in the morning and encounter 150 new people and new voices before we've even had breakfast. You know, our lives are so overwhelmed with other people, um, which leads, I think, to a lack of empathy because we can't care about everyone. We're literally seeing in front of us. And with news, which is now 24-7 and rolling and um, ever more sensational to keep our attention. And there's so much of life that's beyond the existence our brains have been wired for that we can get overwhelmed. And that is not that's not necessarily uncertainty, but that's uh, a feeling of being out of control, which is slightly different. It's interesting too, uh, the talking about the populations getting larger, because uh, one of the things that they talk about when they crowd rats together is that they start doing things that are asocial. They start raping each other and stealing each other's food and, yes. you know, and on and yeah. on. And, and eating each other. And, <laughs> and eating each other. And I, I very much believe, even though I've never read the, the thing that you say about um, uh, Dunbar, I, I have always said that once populations grew beyond the village size, our, our, it is a different thing for our brain, uh, mostly because of anonymity. I, you know, I think there's a great thing about yeah. anonymity, but I think it it gives free reign to the darkness in people, um, and we stop yes. caring for each other. We we lose a sense of responsibility and tell ourselves somebody else will take care of that. Totally, and I think there's something about urban living. Full stop. That is. You know, and it, it's it's not, it's very easy to say it's just about one thing. I think it's about all sorts of things. There's a lot of interesting statistics about growing, about the environment and mental health. Like, for instance, in the UK, there's now a big movement, specifically in Scotland, it's actually part of the National Health Service, talking about ecotherapy, where they'll actually take recovering addicts or people with uh, moderate to mild depression and they'll you know get them in a forest or get them planting trees and get them tending to allotments and gardens and stuff and and there's a sort of therapeutic benefit of it there's also research about what cities do to our mental health like for instance the prevalence of schizophrenia is almost twice as high amongst people living in a city 
to people who live in rural areas and, and surrounded by nature. And, you know, my dad's an architect and he says there's research even about how physical design of buildings, the, for instance, in the 1960s in London, there was a sudden trend for the big high rise apartment blocks, you know, for cheap housing for people. And, you know, how, how that exacerbated um, not just social problems, but mental illness as well. So there's almost like an architecture of mental illness. And we've created these unnatural um, worlds for ourselves. And I feel like, you know, so many of our problems, whatever your stance on sort of, I don't know, environmentalism, whatever, so many of our problems nowadays, I think, are, are to do with um, human beings somehow forgetting their nature or wanting to forget their nature. You know, we're detached from nature. So obviously that leads to environmental problems, but it also leads to human problems because we, we don't see ourselves as animals. We don't see ourselves as living beings as such. We sort of see ourselves as these sort of separate things um, and our, therefore our routines become unnatural. We'll watch Netflix till three in the morning because we're onto our seventh show of our favorite series. Um, you know, everything becomes, the way we eat becomes a bit more unnatural. We're further and further detached from the cow we are eating or whatever it is. You know, we, we're so separate from from nature and I feel like sometimes going back to my flooded house like when I was in New York sometimes when you're literally faced with a threat of nature or something it, 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 it your brain suddenly aligns with its natural self because you think okay I'm this being in nature and I don't want to press this point too hard but increasingly over the years I've I've found situations which are unnatural to be very bad for my health, so most obviously with panic attacks. Where I used to have panic attacks was always in these very artificial man-made environments. So I'd go to a shopping centre or an airport or, you know, well, famously aeroplanes give people panic attacks, but um, somewhere with uh, no windows or, you know, totally artificial light or artificial music or whatever it was. And the trunk of things, a stranger's car. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and traffic, traffic could, you know, just actually being in your own car and can was it's still actually if I if I'm on a long journey, I won't get like a panic attack, but I'll feel worse for it if I'm just sort of sitting in the same position in a tiny little metal box for ages. And um, yeah, so I, I I have this big theory. It might one day try and formulate it into a, something coherent and write a book about it. But I have this theory that, like, you know, the more detached we are from nature, the worse it is um, for our minds. But I don't really know the way back because we're so, you know, there's so much about modern life, which is great and we, which we wouldn't want to do without. But there, there needs to be some sort of balance or something. I, I of... couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, living in Los Angeles, I get so out of touch from nature. And I think it's one of the reasons I love woodworking. It's like I can't get to the trees, but I can I can bring the trees to me and just holding a piece of wood and just seeing the organic nature of it, the, yeah. the rings and see how many years it was alive and how the grain is different than any other piece of that species that I've worked with before. It's, it, it, I feel something greater than myself when I'm, when I'm yeah. in that, in that moment. I relate so, to that. Yeah. We, we, 
we have a beach near us um but it's it's not a sandy beach it's a it, it, it's stone stone beach and i was just we were just hunting for nice um stones and pebbles the other day and skimming a few of them on the water and it's those sort of little moments that are, are kind of nothing moments in life and they're not moments you think about you don't wake up and think oh i'm going to skim some stones today but it's those moments where you actually lose yourself are often um natural you know they're often mm-hmm. you in nature so you feel like uh, trading some reasons to stay alive reasons to stay alive well i i there was a blog i i wrote before i wrote the book which was called reasons to stay alive and i could actually i could read the the number 10 well i could read the full 10 list because it's only two and a half pages so it'll take okay. about a minute and i'll okay. actually go through okay what, what this was the first thing I ever wrote in the book, Reasons to Stay Alive. It predates the book. And this was me, older me, talking to younger me. Number one, you are on another planet. No one understands what you are going through, but actually they do. You don't think they do because the only reference point is yourself. You have never felt this way before. And the shock of the descent is traumatizing you, but others have been here. You are, you are in a dark, dark land but with a population of millions. Two, things aren't going to get worse. You want to kill yourself. That is as low as it gets. There is only upwards from here. Three, you hate yourself. That is because you are sensitive. Pretty much every human could find a reason to hate themselves if they thought about it as much as you did. We're all total bastards, us humans, but also totally wonderful. Four, so what? You have a label, depressive. Everyone would have a label if they asked the right professional. Five, that feeling you have that everything is going to get worse is just a symptom. Six, minds have their own weather systems. You are in a hurricane. Hurricanes run out of energy eventually. Hold on. Seven, ignore stigma. Every illness had stigma once. We fear getting ill and fear tends to lead to prejudice before information. Polio used to be erroneously blamed on poor people, for instance, and depression is often seen as a weakness or personality failing when it's not. Eight, nothing lasts forever. This pain won't last. The pain tells you it will last. Pain lies. Ignore it. Pain is a debt paid off with time. Nine, minds move. Personalities shift to quote myself from a novel called The Humans, your mind is a galaxy, more dark than light, but the light makes it worthwhile, which is to say, don't kill yourself. Even when the darkness is total, always know that life is not still. Time is space. You are moving through that galaxy. Wait for the stars. And finally, number 10, you will one day experience joy that matches this pain. You will cry euphoric tears at the Beach Boys. You will stare down at a baby's face as she lies asleep in your lap. You will make great friends. You will eat delicious foods you haven't tried yet. You will be able to look at a view from a high place and not assess the likelihood of dying from falling. There are books you haven't read yet that will enrich you. Films you will watch while eating extra large buckets of popcorn. And you will dance and laugh and have sex and go for runs by the river and have late night conversations and laugh until it hurts. Life is waiting for you. You will be stuck here for a while, but the world isn't going anywhere. Hang on in there if you can. Life is always worth it. That's what I wrote to myself. 
Well, uh, I I love it, Matt. I was gonna I was gonna chime in with some, but uh, <laughs> I think I think that's a great note to end on. It's so uh, poetic and beautiful. And thanks for taking the time out to to talk about this stuff and being such a, a great advocate. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. I really love that conversation, and uh, it was great talking to you. Many many thanks to uh, to Matt. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, let's dive into some surveys. What do you say? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Mia and about her depression. She writes, why do I feel worthless and lazy for not getting out of bed when I'm simultaneously deeply convinced that everything I could ever do is pointless anyway? And about her bulimia, there are two monsters inside of me, tearing me to shreds. One screams, I'm hungry, and the other screams, you're fat. I give her that, Mia. Uh, and then this is a snapshot from her life. Uh, it's a, a bit graphic. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's it's necessarily something I need to, to preface, but... Uh, she writes, after binging, I sometimes throw up into cups so as to not raise my boyfriend's suspicion by going to the bathroom too many times. Sometimes I dispose of the vomit by pouring it out of the window because I'm afraid my boyfriend might hear the sound of the toilet flushing. I live on the fifth floor and just below my window is a patch of lawn no, no one ever walks on and hardly anyone can see. So in the beginning, it seemed, quote, safe to dispose of my vomit there. However, the vomit hitting the lawn makes a strange noise, and I've become scared that my boyfriend might hear it and figure out what I'm doing. So I've begun pouring the vomit against the facade to silence the sound by having it trickle down slowly. The problem is that the beautiful yellow house front is now stained with vomit right next to our bathroom window, and every other day I have a panic attack over the chance that someone might find out 
and I'll be so terribly humiliated that I'll never recover. Addiction is so cruel. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really, uh, that's in, intense and, and I think such a great example of the lengths we will go to to avoid feeling what we're feeling and to find any coping mechanism to deal with it. And the, the insanity, uh, you know, so many times in, in an addiction, uh, I would just do stuff that I would be like, why am I doing this? Because I don't want to feel. Because I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And it kind of breaks my heart that that you can't invite your your boyfriend into your into your world, but I understand. It's like when we're dealing with an addiction, we're like that wounded animal that just wants to go in the corner and keep everybody away because we're so filled with shame and we believe that help is not going to work for us and you know, if we open up, we're going to be judged or it's going to be used against us or somebody's going to tell us that we need to do something that we don't want to do. A thousand, a thousand different, different things. But thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by Board at Work. And they write, I love when I'm walking down the street or riding the bus and I'm listening to the show and either you or your guest say something hilarious and I'm just sitting there trying to suppress my laugh. I'll cover my mouth, bite my lip, and look down, but I'm pretty sure everyone can still tell by my torso shaking. Also, I love that first crunch of cereal in the morning when I wake up really hungry, have my big fleece sweater on, and don't have to work that day. Oh, those are great. Those are great. Oh, cereal. Sweet, sweet cereal. I miss it. I can have oatmeal, but... Yeah, oatmeal can be pretty good, especially if you put fresh fruit in it, put some cinnamon in it. Not the not the instant kind, the steel cut oats. That stuff's good. It takes about a half hour to cook, and I don't, I don't got that time. I don't got that kind of time. <laughs> I'm I'm due in the chair to think about myself. I don't have time to practice self care. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Johnny. He identifies as straight, is in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts, fantasizing kidnap and rape of women in my life. Darkest secrets, my first ejaculation was from auto fellatio. Um... That, that I am amazed that anybody can can do that. I certainly don't judge anybody. I, I don't know of a a male who at some point in their life did not wonder if they could do that and try it. And uh I think most of us came up came up empty. Um and I think if you asked most men would you like to have the ability to do it? Uh, I think all men would probably say yes. I don't know how often they'd they'd do it, but would certainly like to give it a whirl. We'd certainly like to take our our flexible spine for a test drive. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. A rape fantasy, female domination fantasy, loving sex fantasy, futanari, and I don't share any of it with anybody. Um, I think Futanari, I think that's the tentacle one. Uh, 
I probably should have looked that up on the internet before I read that, but uh, anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to, to clearly express my hurt to the first girl who reciprocated feelings towards me only to swiftly abandon me. What, if anything, do you wish for? To have a good, intimate, emotional, and sexual relationship with a good woman whom I'm attracted to and to rid myself of the fear to pursue it. Have you shared these things with others? Only the ones to do with the women who hurt me. I share none of my dark sexual fantasies, as it's not socially accepted. I don't share my desire for a relationship because I feel that admitting desire puts me in a weak, invulnerable position. How do you feel after writing these things down? Strange. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And, you know, as I've said many times on the podcast, you know, they're, uh, everybody, uh, or I should say most people have a fantasy, uh, sexual fantasy that they're not comfortable with. Um, but it's w- what we do with it that, that matters. And so, you know, as long as you're not harming anybody and it's not progressing in, into something you feel like you want to do in real life, man, uh, have some compassion for yourself. And um, I, I hope... I hope you can find a way to open up and, and become uh, more vulnerable. There, There is no, in my opinion, real chance for intimacy without risking being hurt. There just isn't. But I also think that's one of the things that, that makes intimacy feel so good, is we've taken that leap of faith and we're met with love and and trust and it's it's an amazing feeling this is uh from a struggle in a sentence filled out by Anne, who struggles with bipolar and a snapshot from her life she writes i've been praying for death for two weeks straight only to wake up one day with the energy to create chaos like a flip had switched I spent hundreds of dollars on things I did not need, started fights with people I love, and took risks I would not normally. I had never felt so confident and beautiful before. I didn't know then what was happening to me, but it was only the beginning. Thank you for sharing that, Anne. Man, bipolar is a motherfucker. I've I've never experienced full-out mania, but I've experienced hypomania, and that was enough. Uh, The credit card debt from that was enough to give me a healthy respect. But it feels so fucking good. Oh my God, I feel so creative when I experienced hypomania, but uh, it, it's, it, can, it can definitely leave some wreckage. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, 5236 Dittman Street. Uh, she identifies as straight. She is... In her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was 10, I used to take horseback riding lessons. The instructor was about a 60-ish years old man. Uh, He used to have me sit on his lap, and he would reach his hand up my shirt and touch my chest and rub my legs and butt through my pants. I would always let him do it, but in my head, I would always be like, okay, when do we get to ride horses? He would ask me to scooch around on his lap and give him kisses on the cheek all the time. 
He always told me I was pretty. I thought he was weird, but I didn't really think too much of it. One day when I got out of school, my mom picked me up and said we needed to go to the police station because they had to ask me some questions about the horseback riding instructor. The police asked me if he had ever touched me or done anything to me to make me uncomfortable. I told them no to everything because I was afraid if I said anything to get him in trouble, I wouldn't be allowed to ride horses anymore. I denied everything. Turned out he had actually done the same things to a lot of other little girls and even raped some of them. He ended up committing suicide after he was caught. I'm now 28 and I have never admitted to my mother that it happened because I would feel so heartbroken if she knew that it happened to me. Thank you for sharing that. And it's it's so common that we don't share something with our parents because we're afraid that it's going to overwhelm them, you know, um, like Chanel Miller talks about in her book, how she was so afraid of the pain it would cause her parents to, to talk about her assault. Um, and, you know, I, I think that parent would want to know because they would want the opportunity to be there for you. Um, she has been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? I feel like I learned a lot about caring for horses, and I thought that my instructor was generally a really nice guy. Knowing what I know now as a grown woman, I am so disgusted with him and also myself for not realizing what he was doing was bad. I just thought, well, he's a weird old guy. I'm going to let him do this, and then we can play with the horses. Darkest Thoughts Sometimes I wish I would have realized at the time that he was doing something awful to me, and I wish I would have punched him or kicked him in the balls. Darkest Secrets. I cheated on my boyfriend in my longest-term relationship. I never told him. He cheated on me as well, and I caught him. I gave him a horrible time about it and told him what a terrible person he was, all the while knowing I had done the same thing. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have fantasies about being raped. I would never want it to happen to me, but for some reason, it makes me feel turned on. I'm not sure what it says about me that I fantasize about this. It makes me feel horrible. It says nothing uh, about your your morality, and it's super common. And um, it's also common uh, for people who have experienced assault and violation. And... Um, you're not alone in that. Have you shared these things with others? I have told friends and boyfriends about the molestation I experienced as a child, but never my family. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel neutral. I sometimes wonder why I'm not more psychologically messed up as an adult, knowing that I was molested by someone for almost a year as a child. Well, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to chime in on, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to read your survey is... It's hard for us to register the damage that we've experienced because it's our normal. And a lot of times the ripples of trauma um, can be something, you know, a load that's added to us, but it can also be something that's missing from us. And until we experience that thing like uh, intimacy or connection or trust, we don't realize that it was missing. And also for a lot of us, we go numb, we shut down, and we don't even realize we're shutting down. I was shut down for the first 40, 40 years of my life 
And I didn't realize it until I opened up and I began sharing what I felt and thought and processing what, what had happened to me. And, um, if you're not in therapy or support group, I think it would be a great, great thing for, for you to do. And, and who knows the, you know, the cheating might even be related to that. Um, promiscuity is, uh, often a repercussion of, um, sexual violation, uh, depression, um, substance abuse. Those are all things that can be after effects of uh, sexual violation. But uh, thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from Ask Paul Anything, and Dry Bowser asks, how do you get your guests? What is your process? Uh, I put the phone book up like a dartboard, and I throw darts at it. Now, I, there's a variety of ways. Sometimes I'll uh, have someone in, in a support group that I think would be a good guest or a friend of mine. Uh, sometimes I'll see something uh, maybe on the news about somebody or I'll see them on a documentary uh, and I'll reach out to them. Um, I get guests um, through publicists contacting me uh, because the person has a book out or other things. So a variety, a variety of ways. And this is from the love survey filled out by Partial, and they write Marzipan, Robert Se- Sapolsky videos. I have no idea who he is. Psychedelics, making music, writing, intercourse. <laughs> love how formal that is. Intercourse. I think you should have put experiencing a penis in the vagina. I think that would have <laughs> intercourse. I never hear anybody use uh, use that word. Thank you for that. That gave me a chuckle. Uh, this is a heavy one. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself alive but not living. Um, he's straight in his 30s. Uh, He has a sex addiction, uh, which includes child pornography. Uh, He has PTSD, and he writes uh, around locations and police. Snapshot from his life. Worst week of my life. Monday started with me going to the job that I dreamed about for years. It took me years of trying to get it before I finally lucked in. I thought finally my life was reaching its summit. Uh, the rest of my years, I would just get old and fat and no more chasing. I had just bought a house, good marriage, awesome child, and finally my dream job. Only thing missing was a better marriage. After eight years, it became stale and loveless. Working different schedules, raising a child, little sex life, everything, little sex life, everything was okay on the surface, but underneath the foundation was weak. Tuesday, while at work, I wrote my wife a nice love letter saying I wanted us to be happy again. We had built up walls of silent anger against each other. I was angry that she constantly refused any of my advances, and sex was something boring and penciled in on a Tuesday night if she wanted it. She was mad that I didn't do enough around the house. I was willing to do anything, since I thought at that moment it was the only thing left to fix in my life. Tuesday night at work, I see and hear a group of police walking towards me. My heart races, and I know my life is over. They sit me down and explain that they found child pornography on my home computer. 
I died right there, knowing everything I had fought and struggled for was gone. I was whisked away to jail. I could have bailed myself out, but I was too ashamed to see anyone and didn't want to waste any money that my wife and daughter would need for the future. Wednesday morning courthouse, I was read my charges and sent to jail to wait my trial. I could hear my wife crying in the courtroom, even though I couldn't see her without my glasses. My lawyer told me that she was divorcing me. First night in jail was full of fear as I couldn't see without my glasses, and I could hear that my crime had made every hourly news. Other inmates watching the news were now on the lookout for me. Thursday morning, I'd given in that this would be my life. However, as long as my wife and child were okay, that was all that mattered. While sitting in a chair, waiting to read the newspaper, uh, I was rushed by inmates and surrounded. My story was on the front page news with my picture. I panicked and told the guard that I wanted to kill myself just to get out of the situation. They brought me to the nurse who evaluated me. They decided to put me on another block in a cell by myself. Being by myself, I felt a little protected, but it only took a short time before word spread where I was and the cell block chanted the worst things. My mind broke. I found a book and tore the pages out, dipped them in the toilet water and pasted them to my cell door window. Then I found rubber band liners from someone's underwear. I wrapped it around my neck and tied it to the post on the top bunk and dropped my weight. I was slowly blacking out, but I could still hear the other inmates cheering me on to kill myself. It probably wasn't too long after that the guards rushed into my cell and got me loose. I was alive, but I just wanted everything to stop. I wanted everything, I wanted to escape. I was placed on 24 watch, locked in a cell with nothing but a toilet and concrete slab. All my clothes were taken away. I thought if I couldn't hang myself, I could starve myself. So for five days, I refused water and food. My mind was broken. I just paced back and forth, naked in myself. In my cell. It wasn't till just looking out the window and the sun hitting my face that something popped in my head. Not a voice, but an idea not of my own. The whole idea was that my life was not a tragedy. There was a purpose for all this, that I needed to go through this to help people. So after five days, I finally cleared my mind enough to want to live again. I finally took my first shower in over a week. The warm water was the first comfort I had had in over a week, and I cried in the shower. A day later, I had my family bail me out of jail, since I knew that I needed help, and the, jo- and the jail offered no help. I am still awaiting my trial. I found some happiness but struggle to find a job since I can't pass a background check. I am still lost and have just enough hope to keep going some days, but I just feel like things are going to be okay. I am nowhere near okay, but I know it will happen. Just hope I can stay out of jail and continue working with my therapist and support group. I fail more than I win most of the time. But that was the snapshot of me finally getting everything I ever wanted in my life and less than a week later losing it all and trying to kill myself. Any comments to make the podcast better? It helps to hear some hope when there is so little. There are just some crimes that you can't come back from. There's no parties or redemption. We celebrate people overcoming drug and alcohol addiction, but I will always be seen as a monster. I wish I did drugs, drank, or other crime in 
honesty, life would be easier. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it's, it is good that you are trying to change and that you are, and that you are getting help. And, uh, it, you know, it seems like a, a sliver, uh, of, of light has, uh, has hit you and, uh, just keep moving towards it, man. Just keep moving towards it. This is from the love survey filled out by Doggy Daddy, and he writes, Things my chihuahua does. Stands on the couch and peeks down the hall like he owns the damn place. Stretches his tiny body across the floor. Stands on two legs and dances for cheese. (laughs) Puts his ears back when he knows he's in trouble. And makes monkey noises when he sleeps. I would love to see that. Oh, I love the noises dogs make when they sleep. Get those little paws going. I would always love to see their dream projected on on a screen. You know it would revolve around food or other dogs or squirrels. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by Pangelian Panther. And they love, I write when I'm outside and decide to take out my headphones because I notice how loudly the birds are singing. I love when I walk past the house and there is a smell of laundry detergent. Oh, that's a great one. I love that one too. I love closing my eyes and feeling the sun on my face. I love when my dad signs his messages lol because he thinks it means lots of love oh fucking dads uh i love espresso Uh, me too i love listening to people speaking in a language i don't understand i love when i'm playing a concert and i get so lost in the music that i forget about everything else i love spending time with little kids in the shameless way they communicate what they are feeling I love getting into bed after cleaning my whole apartment and taking a long, hot shower. I love the sea, especially when it's cold and wavy. I love being in the big and crowded cities when the weather is extreme and seeing how all people are really the same. I love the way Gene Kelly dances. Oh, that's a great one. I love sleeping without an alarm clock after a time of very hard work or partying. And I love how funny sheep's voices sound. Those are great. Thank you for those. I'm having trouble. Oh, the sheep, uh, that's the ba, right? Yeah. What do goats do? Are goats similar to sheep? (laughs) I'll look into that and get back to you guys next week. Anyway, I hope you are surviving the pandemic. I I feel like there's an end in sight. Uh, my girlfriend and I went to a restaurant uh, last weekend that had indoor seating. And, uh, I mean, it was sparse. There was only like four tables in the entire restaurant, but it was really nice. It was really nice. I don't think I'd sat in a restaurant in probably a year. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you got something out of it. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and uh, you're confused, Losing hope, just remember you're not alone. You are not alone, and help us out there. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.